Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with my old friend and client, Craig Anderson, who is now CFO of Operation Smile. This is a man who spent decades as CFO of the Henry Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine, serving the interests of military medicine on behalf of the men and women who have served this great country and the armed forces. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and it is a special pleasure for me to welcome Craig Anderson as a guest to the podcast. Craig Anderson is currently the CFO of Operation Smile, uh, and he has a long career in mission-driven work. Uh, He was the CFO for decades of a great organization chartered by Congress called the Henry Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine. Uh, That's where uh, I got to know Craig Anderson. That's where we got to work together. So I know firsthand about his commitment to mission and his incredible work ethic, his track record of building strong teams and leading them. Uh, And I am just delighted to welcome you. Craig Anderson, welcome to The Indispensables. Bruce, it's great to be here. Very good to see you again. For people who um, think about, you know, gee, CFO of a zillion dollar charitable organization, and before that you were CFO of a different zillion dollar charitable foundation, um, you know, how how does somebody get to be where you are? What's your basic story? Well, I would say serendipity and hard work, and just a couple brief words. Uh, Grew up in the D.C. area in Northern Virginia. I was an undergrad accounting major and management information system major at the University of Virginia. I thought I was going to go into public accounting, but I didn't want to do that in the D.C. area. There was too much government, and I wanted to be more manufacturing and commercial-oriented. So it seemed like I kept getting offers for D.C. or Roanoke. So I decided to go to graduate business school at Wash U at St. Louis, Missouri, figuring that was a good manufacturing commercial town with uh, McDonnell Douglas and uh, Pet, which is the pet food group, Anheuser-Busch and several other things. So uh, after that, I uh, fell in love, uh, came back here for the summer, at the end of the summer, got engaged and decided I better stay in DC. So one thing I've learned through my career is if you say something like, I don't want to be in DC or with government, that's exactly what happens to me. It's <laughs> happened to me all throughout my career. What I say I don't want to do is exactly where I end up. So uh, with that, I actually ended up in local government and was a senior accountant for a municipality in Fairfax County for about less than a year. And it seems like many organizations I go to fall on hard times just before I get there or just after I get there including that municipality. So my boss, who is a director of finance, left. Uh, The town manager left. The head of planning left. The Department of Public Works director left. I was actually promoted to director of finance of this municipality when I was just 24 years old. So again, it was kind of serendipity, you know, that uh, 
And it was a great experience because I was a big fish in a small pond. And I got to dabble in everything. I got to dabble. I dealt with the media. I had public hearings every other week. I had work sessions with this town council on the opposite weeks. You know, I interacted with the public. I interacted with the various departments of the town. Uh, it was really enjoyable, although in local government, they have a little thing called an election every two years. And about every four years, the politics totally change. I was there a little over 10. I was on my fourth boss. And finally, I was with one that I just couldn't work for. So I decided to leave. And that's when I ended up at the Henry Jackson Foundation. Yeah, let me just uh, draw a bright line on a few uh, under a few things there. Serendipity and hard work. I like that. I like your rule that uh, if, if you want to end up in a particular field, uh, then declare yourself not, I'm not doing that, right? Uh, and uh, St. Louis, uh, gosh, we've, we've had a lot of clients in St. Louis, including Anheuser-Busch, um, and it could have been a great town for you, but uh, falling in love now, that's, that's, um, uh, that's a good excuse for moving back to D.C. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so, okay, so, so you spent 10 years in finance in municipal government and then you uh, shift gears and move to the federal level right i uh i realized that if i was going to stay in the dc area i needed to learn all i could about the federal acquisition regulations and government contracting so in ruston was the headquarters of the u.s geological survey every night on my way home from work, I'd stop by their library for about an hour. This was before the internet, by the way, but I stopped by their <laughs> library for the, for an hour or two and study up the federal on um, the federal acquisition regulations and government contracting. Anyway, I'd said I wanted to leave the D.C. area to get away from government. I ended up in local government in the D.C. area. Then I ended up with a government contractor in the D.C. area. So again, if you say you don't want to do something, that's just where you're going to end up. Yeah. And when I found you, you were uh, leading the financial operations of a, uh, I say zillion dollar, I think at that time it was something like 400 million foundation, which was doing, you know, God's work, in my opinion, uh, uh, doing research on everything from uh, traumatic brain injuries to um, uh, infectious disease. And and my recollection is you were interfacing with uh, what Walter Reed um, and uh, the Department of Defense and the, I mean, you know, you were up to your ears in federal government relationships. So uh, you did not do a very good job of avoiding the government crap. Right. <laughs> I did this time. Yeah. With that Operation Smile, although Operation Smile is also a, a mission driven organization and it may be accidental, but may I observe that um all of your work, uh, or certainly most of your career, has been in mission-driven work. That's correct. And actually, when I switch, which I haven't done very often, I look for mission-driven work. And there are some interviews I don't even take because I don't agree with the mission of the organization. So, and I and I know I know you've been at Operation Smile now for how long? Almost three years. In June, I'll have been there three years. So I really want to ask you about that mission and the challenges of uh, helping to navigate that organization uh, through its current chapter and into its next chapter. Um, but I do want to uh, drill down a little bit on um, you were at uh, HJF for decades, right? 
Right. And and if if I recall correctly, when you took over the financial uh, operations of that foundation, what what was the budget then? Oh, I think the budget was about twelve million dollars. And what's a real hoot is to think back on my first week of work. Uh, I started December 11th, just before Christmas. I'd already turned in my resignation from local government. I was uh, had actually been hired to be the finance director for a large, uh, large local government outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And it was probably 20 so- times the size of HJF at the time. But when HJF called me up and offered me the job, I just couldn't refuse it because I could be so much so entrepreneurial at HJF, whereas in local government, even though that particular local government had a electric utility, the rest of it, I would know 90% of it from the day I walked in. So I ended up calling them up, turning them down, and accepting the job at HJF. Uh, My first week at work, they uh, put me into an office and they said, you can sit in here. Uh, The auditors are done, uh, so you can use the office they were in. The second day I asked about the cash position, actually the first day I asked about the cash position and they said, oh, not a problem. You've got a million dollars in the bank. I said, oh, okay, I won't worry about that till next week. Well, then the second day on Tuesday, they told me, oh, by the way, uh, you owe this program a million dollars. So I was like, okay, yesterday I had a million, today I owe a million. That puts me at zero. <laughs> the third day the bank called up to say we were overdrawn and it gets even better. The fourth day, we had our holiday party because that was about the 15th of December by then. And I got called away during the middle of the holiday party by the audit partner who introduced herself. I introduced myself and she proceeded to tell me that they had burned up all of their audit fee and walked out in disgust. So that was my first week on the job. <laughs> wow. Um, but you and now I, I know you have an expertise in audit, especially after all your time at HJF, because, of course, that kind of entity with the kinds of hundreds of millions of dollars, ultimately in federal funding, there's a lot of auditing that goes on. Right. Correct. Yeah. We had six full time Department of Defense contract audit agency employees in our office space. But, but at the time when you arrived there, were you already an expert on audit or was that the beginning? No, no. But remember, I'd been, I had been going to the geological survey and studying up on the federal acquisition regulations of government contracting. And that really gave me a base. And then I just did a lot of training in uh, that area uh, and just working, just in, in putting in place processes so that we could manage our cash flow, we could do our budget better. And turn their organization around. So that first year went by in a flash, to be honest with you, uh, just doing things. But it was it was crazy. My accounting major, excuse me, my accounting manager did not even have an accounting degree. So, you know, she would send out the monthly financial statements and only include one of the semi-monthly payrolls in them. And the faculty would call me up and scream at me. So it was, that first year was was really something. When, when you say the faculty, you mean from USIS? From the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. Yes, correct. Uh, and so, and how many employees were there? So you show up and what, what's the year just for perspective? Uh, I, December of 89. Okay. So you show up there, December of 89, they got a million dollars. Then the next day they don't have a million dollars. And then, <laughs> and then they're, you're Third day overdrawn. And, and the auditors are leaving in disgust. 
and um and and you're and you're like hey great good good thing i took this job and um so how many employees were there oh at hjf back then we probably had 120. okay and that um did that include the scientists out doing research in the field if they were hgf employees if they were uh, military employees you know they would be the principal investigators but we would provide the staffing for their research projects but you know, they be military would be on the federal government's payroll. What I what I what I, I, I want people to realize is that then over 26 or 27 years, uh, you helped lead that organization to be a 500 million dollar outfit. Correct. Yeah, I think we were about 550 million when I left. Yeah, we had 2200, 2300 U.S. based employees and we had about 800 foreign based employees. And if I might add, you uh, uh, your your last uh, lap around the, that block was as the acting CEO uh, after the very long time CEO uh, uh, left. That's that's correct. So, yeah, they asked me to serve as interim CEO, and so I did that my last year. They conducted the first search, and then they, after interviewing, they decided to restart the search again. So it took them just about a year. Yeah, but I mean, just for perspective, so you basically helped lead that organization to be 50 times the size that it was when you showed up there. That's what I'm telling you. It was a very entrepreneurial experience. And some of it was driven just by um, uh, necessity. You know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And I've got a perfect example there. Uh, You know, my first two years were just building up processes and kind of getting order out of chaos in the finances at HJF. And then uh, during Bill Clinton's candidate's presidency, he tasked Al Gore to come up with a program known as Reinventing Government. And under his Reinventing Government program, one of his items was to close the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, which at that point amounted to 60% of our revenue. So as a CFO, it's like, oh my God, you know, crisis, ring the alarm bells, get the fire trucks. So we really started working to, I started working to try to get competitive government contracts, not grants, but actual government contracts. And uh, we would form teams and go after things. And I'll tell you, our first one, we had several all-nighters. Uh, we had nothing on paper. We had no corporate qualifications, no listing of corporate experience, no description of facilities and assets. The papers were all blanks. All of that had to be created. And our first one was horrible. You know, I'll admit it. It was horrible. I wouldn't have chosen us either among the vendors, even though we may have been lowest cost. But each time we got better and better and better, and we learned and improved. And then we started winning uh, awards. And then that allowed us to grow and diversify. And then uh, Congress overrode the uh, reinventing government and kept the Uniformed Services University open. So that gave us about a two-year breathing, or three-year breathing room. And then they came out with Reinventing Government too. And guess what they did again? <laughs> they wanted to close the Uniformed Services a second time. We kind of went through the second thing of uh, continuing to diversify and grow. Uh, again, the Uniformed Services University proved their worth to the military and to the uh, United States during that period. And it has survived and thrived to this day. Yeah, thank God. And I guess thank Congress. Uh, usually I don't say that in the same sentence. But I mean, my, my uh, work with the military over the years and 
um, it, it's hard to imagine how uh, how that could have been on the chopping block. But uh, I'm glad I'm glad that it uh, is surviving and thriving to this day. Uh, although you you lived through a lot of transformational change uh, in that world, uh, including the merger of uh, Walter Reed. Army Medical Center with the Bethesda Naval Hospital. How did that affect you guys? That was a bit of an unknown because when they sized the facility, they didn't include space for any contractor personnel. And so, you know, we were contractor personnel. And so it was very tight from the beginning. It was very chaotic. Uh, But we made that transition over. Ultimately, it, it worked out. We had to get a lot of our employees using the metro. There was no parking there. Uh, things gradually improved over time, but it was it was a mess at the beginning. You know, and working at HGF in some ways, because of all that happened during my 27 plus years there, it almost felt like I worked for about six or seven different companies, just because the circumstances on the ground kept changing underneath us. Yeah, I can imagine that, and um, uh, uh, I can. Uh, I mean, I, I had some experience with that myself, including you moved to a new facility in Bethesda. Yeah, we went through uh, two moves while I was there. We would grow and we would outgrow our space and we had more and more more and more staff. Actually, when I left there, the finance department had, I think, a staff of 85 people. So we were a pretty large operation there uh, doing many functions. And we had grown several departments over the years. When I started there, we really didn't have a personnel department. We built that up. We had no business development. We had no public affairs, public relations. Uh, we had no program management department. I know when I started winning these awards, I would often win it on uh, you know 7 o'clock on June 30th at night, and I'd have to be on the site at 7 a.m. the next morning recruiting the staff. So because I was the person leading the proposal and managing the proposal, I knew most about the operation. So I was the person that would have to do project management. And over time, I found I was 70% of my job was doing program management. So I walked down to my boss, the CEO, and I said, hey, John, this has to change. We need a program, we need a program management department here because uh, uh, I enjoy the hunt. But then when we're managing these projects, I said, you know, it's just not my strength. We need to get somebody in here who's that sort of strength. And I also say that uh, if you're entrepreneurial, you can tend to do what you enjoy the most. So if it's, you know, going after the hunt or just sitting back and doing finance and accounting things or some mixture, decide what you like. And that's, I think, the key to happiness if you can do that. Well, well said. Um, But uh, also, let me just, um, I want to shine a bright light on the fact that what you're describing is bringing in grant funding uh, for these programs. And so the program management you're talking about, it might be a principal investigator leading a, um, a grant funded um, uh, inquiry about brain injuries, how to improve the treatment of brain injuries or uh, how to improve the, the treatment or tracking and treatment of infectious disease, um, infectious disease being all the rage right now. Uh, can you um, uh, give a, just a couple examples of so people understand the, the huge contribution to military medicine and really medicine on the whole? Well, just look at many of the epidemics around the world since the 80s. You know, HIV AIDS was one. There was no, uh, there's still not really a cure per se, but they can with 
uh, cocktail of drugs, put it into remission. But that was that was one of our largest programs. You know, there was uh, SARS, uh, Ebola outbreaks, influenza, uh, certain types of very deadly influenza around the world. We had programs in, uh, you're not allowed to study smallpox now because I think the Russia and the U.S. have the only two frozen smallpox, but you could study monkeypox, which was a related virus, so that if an outbreak occurred, what could we learn from monkeys and how to suppress it? And what could we do as a treatment rather than as a preventative? You know, so it, yeah, it got into all kinds of work uh, during the wars. You know, uh, uh, there were so many losses of, uh, of extremities among soldiers due to improvised explosive devices. And so combat casualty care became a major, major focus and uh, pain management became a major focus. And it was so sad to go into Walter Reed or Bethesda Naval and see these, uh, you know, crippled soldiers uh, recuperating. And uh, the work that you did um, and your colleagues um, contributed uh, greatly to the restoration of their well-being and um, to advances that um, I think people of all shapes and sizes who are, you know, military and otherwise are now benefiting from. So uh, as an American, uh, I, I say on, my, on behalf of myself and my family, thank you for the work that you that you did there. And um, w- one last question about uh, that work before we move on to Operation Smile. Um, you did not serve in uniform yourself, right? But so many of the people with whom you worked at HJF and so many of the people, not just uh, in the headquarters, uh, but the researchers and so many of the beneficiaries of the research uh, were uniformed uh, service folks. Um, what was that like? Or, you know, was it, uh, how did you learn that culture and learn how to work with those folks and how to get along so well with them? Well, I loved working with them because one, they're very direct and two, they generally had a lot of integrity. And those are the two things that I admire. You know, I don't, uh, I like it when somebody is direct with me and doesn't beat around the bush. And I like to believe what somebody is telling me rather than having to go see whether it's true or not true. So uh, for me, I enjoyed that. Actually, when I was in local government, one of my best friends who was the depart- became the director of public works and then became the town manager, he was ex-Navy. So I really enjoyed working. First, we were friends, and then I worked for him for a number of years, and I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that. And those were the two qualities that I admired in the military. Yeah, that's great. Directness and integrity. It was, it was weird, though, when I was younger than them, and they would call me, say, yes, sir, to me, though. That was the only thing that was kind of odd. <laughs> I mean, I've always found uh, I have a soft spot for uh, people in uniform, I guess, and for their patriotic mission and for their integrity and their directness. Um, but yeah, it is funny to be called sir by, uh, uh, especially when you're young and they're grown up. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 And they might be a surgeon or a PH or some MD or PhD or so it was, yeah, it was a little odd, you know, it was. Yeah, and it's and and a lot of what you were doing there, and and I think it's the essence of program management in general. Um, and, but I, I a lot of what you you brought to the table there was not just your financial acumen, not just your understanding of uh, program finance, 
um, and not just your leadership skill, but the ability to run cross-functional teams. And I'm guessing that's a lot of what you have brought with you to operational uh, to Operation Smile. Uh, correct. Uh, but it's a little more siloed at Operation Smile, I'll say, even though everybody is very collaborative and stresses being collaborative. And if you're not collaborative, you don't live there very long. Yeah, it's a, it's a different different organization because they live on the fundraising and their mission and the quality of their surgeries. You know, that's that's uh, one time in the three years I've been there, they lost one child. The child had a reaction to the uh, anesthesia that uh, the child was given, and that was a major crisis for our organization. So. Medical quality has always been very, very important there. So I'm not as involved with the program management as I used to be. I'm much more in finance. Uh, when I got there, we put out an RFP for a new ERP system. Uh, we implemented that over my first year and got into some other systems. For the uninitiated, um, uh, can you explain ERP? Yeah, Enterprise Resource Planning System. They had had a computer system there, financial management system that they'd had for 18 years, and it just wasn't flexible. It wasn't giving us the information we wanted. We couldn't sort by countries. We couldn't sort by a bunch of different dimensions. So now we can sort by, I think, 10 different dimensions and pull data and analyze data. Uh, along the way, I was also put in charge of information technology. Uh, the main thing I did was beef up uh, cybersecurity. Uh, that's always was my threat, you know, that we get a cybersecurity attack and uh, what we could lose due to that, just reputation-wise and potentially even information-wise. So, yeah, we've been very involved with that. And then this past year has been COVID, 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 which has totally transformed us, uh, totally transformed what we were doing, which was providing uh, cleft lip, cleft palate surgery to children in third world countries. We operate in about 35, 36 different countries around the world, generally poor resource countries. And we recruit volunteer surgeons, anesthesiologists, uh, nurses to go on these international missions. Typically, they last for one to two weeks and provide surgeries to these kids. So that's been our main mission. And because of the past year, we haven't been able to tra travel travel international volunteers, we've had to reorient ourselves towards building up capacity in the, in the field, pre-positioning equipment, supplies, renovating facilities, uh, getting the infrastructure in place, training up local physicians. One of the problems with many of the kids is they're ineligible for the surgery because their nutrition is so poor. You know, if you think if you have a big hole in your lip or your palate, it's very difficult to eat, very difficult to speak. So they've got these devices, plastic devices that can go into their mouths called obturators that will allow them to eat. They can be put in by trained technicians. You don't have to be a physician. And then we can provide, uh, actually it's a peanut, based, peanut butter based product for nutritional aid. So we've teamed up with a number of companies and suppliers and donors to provide that. So uh, even though we can't be doing the... Uh, surgeries right now other than local surgery and using local local talent local physicians and anesthesiologists we are providing all the other services so that when we can 
travel internationally again, we can gear back up fairly quickly. So uh, it sounds like over the last year, uh, there's been a lot fewer of the cleft lip repair surgeries that you guys have been able to deliver, uh, but you're still staying true to the mission and finding ways to strengthen the operations abroad so that uh, on the other side of the pandemic, you're able to implement more, better, faster. Exactly. And that's been through a big expansion in our education programs, a large expansion in our nutrition programs, and a uh, expansion in our speech pathology programs. Uh, so that for those kids we've already uh, done the surgeries on, you know, they need a lot of work with just getting their speech back to near normal. So speech pathology has been another area, and we can do that remotely in most cases. Yeah, and it's important, I think, for people to realize, so, you know, Operation Smile, uh, people might uh, know you by your TV commercials, but that's, you know, those are real kids uh, who, who are not getting those surgeries, uh, but you're able to come in and uh, still prepare some kids for surgery through the nutrition program, and you're able to go back to some of the kids who have had the surgery to help them learn to talk. Yeah. So there are always ways you can perform your mission. They just, uh, you know, again, things get thrust on you, and you have to be flexible, and you have to morph and adapt. You know, you either evolve or die. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, of course, now the evolution is forced upon us by this incredible accident of history, the pandemic. Uh, but it was pre-pandemic, you were helping the organization evolve through an ERP implementation, right? And and uh, just so people fully understand what that is, so it sounds like, oh, enterprise resource planning, oh, check, gotcha. But I, but I love the detail you gave that it's a 10-dimensional database, basically, right? Correct. And, and can you explain a little bit how that helps you execute on the mission more effectively? So, so people understand what it's really a soup-to-nuts data management system that gathers business intelligence and then feeds reporting capability into decision-making, right? Yeah, and there are several dimensions we can that we have developed in this uh, software that are things that we want to keep track of. That's how we've set it up. We have a lot of things in there as to what type of funding it is. Is it restricted funding? Is it unrestricted funding? The country codes, the type of activity it is. I think we have nine of them and then one or two custom fields as well. So, uh, yeah, it's very, very powerful. And right now what we're doing is we're actually implementing a uh, automated accounts payable system. We started looking at this back in late January. We want to be able to have invoices be optically scanned, optical character reader, some artificial intelligence applied to it so it can route those over time according to the proper workflow as to who would be buying those items and just automating that process. Back last fall, we went through a, we decided we needed to prepare for a downturn in revenue. So we actually cut back our staffing by 10%. And, you know, that was something hard to do. And it was hard even on the remaining employees because they had to pick up the slack for that. So the way that we've been able to handle that within our finance department is to focus on process improvement and automation and what can we do better 
uh, to free up more more time. Uh, you know, I'll give a good example. We were working very hard to get away from live paper checks and go to ACH and credit card payments and other forms of payment. Uh, and thank God, because, uh, you know, now I go in once a week and I might sign nine or 10 checks. And they're generally just, you know, refund checks or one-off checks. So, you know, I'm able to work remotely and all the staff is pretty much remote with a couple exceptions. And one of those is the accounts payable staff. So that's why I'd like to employ some automation and artificial intelligence there. And when you're doing those kinds of technology implementations, even if the organization is a bit more siloed than, than others, uh, when you're doing a technology implementation, you're really having to work across functions, right? Because you have to uh, recognize what all the different stakeholders, uh, the information that they have, and then the information that they need. Right. And it's selling that to those different stakeholders because we've had so many implementations at Operation Smile since I've been there. You know, the ERP was one. We implemented a learning management system. We implemented, uh, you know, several other systems. We're doing the CRM now. Uh, we have SAP Concur, which is a travel expense reporting that we went live on two months ago. So just people are getting almost. Um, overwhelmed by the pace of change now, I find. And so you have to sell it to them. You have to explain to them, if we do this, sure, there's going to be more work over the next month, but this is what's going to save you going forward. And I think once they understand that, then they get on board. Yeah. When you're really investing in productive capacity, um, you, I call it, it's like a time factory. My run, you know, my running commentary is, uh, there's 168 hours in a week. Nobody's making any more of them. But in this implementation, in this process improvement, in this uh, in investment in productive capacity, we're actually going to manufacture time for you on the other side of this. Right. So, so what's your approach to leading those cross-functional teams? I mean, I know you're uh, a high-structure, high-substance, detail-oriented leader with your direct reports that you uh, are really good at clarifying expectations and doing good performance tracking with people who report to you. And, you know, that's why, for example, at HJF, not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, uh, one of my primary process improvement strategies when it came to people was, well, why don't we put those people in finance? Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> they'll be well-managed. Um, but, but when you're leading people who don't report directly to you when the lines of authority are not as clear, uh, that's much harder, right? Well, I've told you in the past, I love one of your previous books, the 27 challenges managers face. And you run across those scenarios when you go outside of your own department and you don't necessarily have those relationships, you know, you get the stink bomb throwers, you get the this, you get the that. And I'll tell you, I just love that book because that helped me so much understand what was going on when I would go over into other departments and other places. And even my friends would come over and we'd sit around, you know, on the weekends or something and talk about a problem they were having at work. And I would go, oh, hold it. I go grab your book, chapter six here. You need to read this. And they'd start reading and go, oh, my God, that's exactly 
And, you know, Chris, my wife, is a musician and had a band, and she was having trouble with her bass player. And I go, oh, look here, chapter five. There's this guy. <laughs> I found that that knowledge has really helped me when I work across departments and I don't know people as well because I get to know them much more quicker. And so definite plug on your book there. I still love that. I still try to – I keep a couple copies in my office, and I – when people have a problem, I show it to them and loan it to them. Well, that is very kind of you to say. And, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're happy to send you a, a new crate full of them anytime. But I, but I will, I will uh, point out that uh, there's nothing in that book or any of my other books that I made up all by myself. Really, everything in those books comes from getting to know people like you. So it's, 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 it's a um, virtuous cycle of uh, uh, going into organizations like yours, getting to know the people, learning from people about what's working, learning from people about the challenges they're facing, and then trying to figure out, you know, who's not having a problem with that? And then what are they doing? And, um, you know, that's where, all my, that's where all my solutions come from. Well, and I'll admit to the same thing. They're not things that I've come up with on how to deal with these. It's by reaching out to people and hearing from them that they've taught me, you know, and then I apply those to work. You know, in your in your new book, uh, Being Indispensable, I really love the chapter on getting stuff done, especially uh, Sheryl Sandberg's quote that uh, done is better than perfect. Uh, you know, I tell you, I feel like I fight that all the time. But I decided that I could get a policy done per week to get a bunch of policies that needed to be done. Well, the first one I tackled was employee expense reimbursement. And I think that one took me nine months to get it done. It kept morphing every time, you know, every time someone looked at it, it morphed and morphed and morphed. And my point was a version of, of done is better than perfect. We can always change it. We can always change it in the future. You know, my wife sometimes asks me, uh, she's a different personality than myself, but she'll often ask me, well, how can you just make decisions and, you know, like do things? Aren't you afraid you'll get it wrong? And I said, well, if I get it wrong, I just fix it. Well, but yeah, there's more wisdom in uh, if, if, it, if it doesn't work, then we'll fix it. There's more wisdom there than, than might meet the eye because, yes, done is better than perfect because perfect is a fiction. And uh, I, I always call it the myth of 2%. Between 98% and 100, you could spend nine months and 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 then what ha what that means is for nine months you don't have that policy, and uh, I'll tell you something else that I've learned uh, from the great Warren Bennis, which is, it turns out, uh, one of the the principal traits of the most effective leaders uh, is not that they make fewer mistakes than less effective leaders. Turns out the most effective leaders make about the same number of mistakes as less effective leaders. What is different about them is that they recognize them, acknowledge them, and change them as soon as they see that it was wrong. And, and I've seen that over and over and over again, where somebody makes a decision. It, it turns out very quickly, you can see it was the wrong decision. And then they don't have the guts or the insight or the, I don't know, the ego to say, ah, that was a mistake. Let's change that. Yeah. And sometimes changing it, you know, is hard work. So people 
tend to avoid that at times. So yeah, but it's it's you know, man, if you wait till you get a hundred percent uptake on something before you are willing to pull the trigger, you're not going to get a lot done. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I had an interesting question posed to me just before Christmas, which was, why does Operation Smile not accept cryptocurrency? So my boss wanted me to look into that. He gave it to me a Friday. I actually spent my weekend reading and studying everything I could on cryptocurrency. Uh, the next week, I started holding meetings with different people that could help me and with organizations. And by the end of January, we were accepting cryptocurrency. So uh, uh, we're still getting updating our web pages for that. But it's it really tickled me. And I was actually giving a presentation last month to a town hall on our staff. And they wanted me to go over our year-to-date financial results. But those were kind of boring. I decided to throw in a slide on this cryptocurrency and the experience in implementing cryptocurrency for donors. And the staff just loved it. I mean, I've had so many people reach out to me saying how they never gave that any thought. And they just loved the uh, uh, kind of what I did and how I did it. And what I was proud of is that I got it done in less than two months. We deal in 12 cryptocurrencies now. Uh, the first one we received a donation in was Ethereum. And then the last couple have been in Bitcoin. But, uh, you know, I remember looking at Bitcoin two years ago, and it was about $6,000 per Bitcoin. And the week before Christmas, the weekend before Christmas, it was $23,000 per Bitcoin. And Last week, it was over, it was $50,000 per Bitcoin. Elon Musk decided to buy $1.5 billion worth of cryptocurrency and more than doubled the price on it. So when we, when we get these currencies in, we sell them like right off the bat. But, I mean, doing things like that, I mean, that's how you become indispensable at work, you know? Sure, you got a CEO saying, hey, how come we don't do this? And then uh, in two months, oh, we do this. As we're nearing the end of our time, let me ask you, um, when you're, let's say you get into the elevator uh, on the bottom floor, you're going up uh, to the top, you got somebody there who says, what's your best career advice? Uh, what's your best career advice? You know, a few years back, my brother, who's an engineer and government contractor, uh, was moaning the fact to me that uh, he didn't seem like he was getting ahead. In fact, every five years, they'd recompete his contract and he would lose benefits. Even though his salary might be going up, he would lose benefits. So he wanted to know, what does he need to do to get ahead in his company? So I looked at him and I told him, I said, uh, asked him, what have you ever brought to your company? Have you ever brought any new business into your company? Uh, and he said, well, you know, I'm an engineer. I, you know, I said, well, do you interact with customers? Uh, do you learn what their needs are? Do you let management know what those needs are? Uh, you know, there are things you can do and everybody can do to help a company grow. And that's how, you know, to me, that's the career advice is just uh, try to figure out what the organization needs to grow and then help them attain that. Uh, that will get you noticed. Uh, that's good. That's good. That's excellent advice. Uh, that's, um, that's a great note on which to close. Uh, Craig Anderson, CFO of Operation Smile. Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. Good to be with you. Uh, it was great. 
In our next episode, I'll talk with our very dear friend, Dr. Pamela Haig. She is an author and an editor extraordinaire. She is a, a great mind, and she will talk about how she helps scholars turn their great work into great books. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.